This episode is sponsored by Backblaze. Get unlimited computer backup for Macs or PCs for just six bucks a month. Backup docs, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, podcasts, all your data. Restore files anywhere you have internet. And even if you're off the grid, we can overnight a hard drive to you with your backup on it. Over 40 billion files restored. Get yourself a free, fully featured trial at backblaze.com slash cpc. Please make sure you visit backblaze.com slash cpc so they know where you came from and continue to support the show. Go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today! This episode contains very explicit content. Themes such as murder, torture, and rape of men, women, and children will be discussed. Listener discretion is strongly, strongly advised. We imagine monsters in the dark. Otherworldly entities hiding in nooks and crevices. Malevolent things undefined stalking us in unfamiliar territory. We fear what we don't know. Our hairs stand on end at the thought of what might be behind us. The mind is a powerful tool for conjuring terror. But fantasy is often no match for reality. When the terror is in broad daylight, right in front of us, and known, perhaps even loved, fear is transcended. I'm sure you've heard that we are the true monsters, that the depth humans can delve is far scarier than any imagined threat. I'm sure we've all heard something like that but we don't know the half of it. Truly, like the classic Twilight Zone episode, the monsters are due on Maple Street. And to further quote Rod Serling, the tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. Minds can be corrupted. They can fester and rot and lead to horrific actions. But what of the minds of the victims? The otherwise innocent, caught up in the whirlpool of perversion and dragged to the bottom of depravity. How do they fall into the whirlpool in the first place? And why don't they just swim out? Why don't they swim out of the whirlpool? They asked, watching from the cliffs above it. For one never truly knows what it's like to be inside the whirlpool, even when they're treading water in it. This will be, really, the first episode of its kind on the show. Again, I'll warn those of you who are squeamish, faint of heart, or offended by gruesome details to turn back now. We're about to discuss three creepy cults on this episode of blurry photos. Hey everyone, I'm David Flora, and welcome to Blurry Photos! That's right, it's the most wonderful time of the year, where the weather is finally cooler, and the episodes have that extra special spookiness to them. This month I'll be exploring a couple special topics, including a classic of folklore, some good old ghost stories, and this episode of Modern Horrors. Real quick, I'm a finalist for the Chicago Reader's Best Podcast of Chicago this year, and you can help me try and win it by visiting blurryphotos.org and clicking on the big yellow image that says vote for me. No account necessary, just go to the City Life page, which is page four of it, if you're on mobile, find Best Podcast, select Blurry Photos, and click Save. The best part is, you can do it as many times as you want. I definitely need votes this time around. The competition is much fiercer, so all the help you can give would be great. We'll go on and get to the topic, but uh, stick around afterwards for a special announcement I think you're going to like. For this episode, I have chosen a topic that is a bit outside the norm of usual topics, broad as I try and make them. But it's a topic that, in my opinion, 
more than fulfills the requirement for fear. It's a different kind of frightening than we're used to on the show. It's real. It's tangible. It's unnerving and horrific. And sometimes it's in our own backyards. I've picked out three creepy cults to discuss. And I hate to say it, but there were many to choose from. My goal in picking them was to provide a variety to talk about and face the scope of what real terror is out there in the world. I hope by doing so we grow our understanding of human behavior and not jump the gun on judging behavior and people as just being crazy or keep condescendingly asking why a victim would get themselves into such a situation in the first place. I'm not going to be so bold as to say we'll know the red flags and be able to prevent similar cases after this. Learning more about these stories has opened my eyes a bit, is all. Hopefully it'll give you a better understanding of what goes into the makeup of cults as well. I'll be telling you the stories of the Japanese cult of Aum Shinrikyo, the Canadian cult called the Ant Hill Kids, and the family of Marcus Wesson from Fresno, California. Again, 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 there will be content that includes gruesome and violent acts, especially to women and children. I, I can't stress this enough. I, I'm trying not to focus on the details of the gruesome stuff, but a lot of them are germane to the storytelling, so I've left them in the script. It gets real hard in the paint, you guys. I, I am very serious. So, this is your final warning. If you don't like this kind of stuff, please turn back. I'm going to definitely try and get some lighter content out there after this episode, so just hang in there. With that said, we'll begin in Tokyo, Japan. Aomo Shinsen no Kai, which has been translated as Aum Immortal Mountain Wizard Association, or Aum Incorporated, was started in 1984 as a meditation workshop and store for health remedies and information. It was described by members at the time as a fun little consortium with peaceful spiritual ambitions. It was founded in the small apartment of Chitsuo Matsumoto, a 29-year-old, mostly blind acupuncturist from Kumamoto Prefecture. Matsumoto had been born in 1955 to a large yet very poor family of mat weavers in a small village of Yetushro. Due to his mother's poor diet, he was blind in one eye and partially blind in the other from infantile glaucoma. Because of this, he attended a school for the blind where he found what little vision he had gave him an edge over his fellow classmates. He used this to manipulate bully and get bribes from them, often violently, and left school in much better financial shape than he started. At the time, it was pretty standard for the blind in Japan to get work as acupuncturists or to practice Eastern medicine. Matsumoto moved to Tokyo in 1977 and became an herbalist, also dabbling in acupuncture and yoga. He married that same year, and his first child was born in 1978. When I say dabbling in these pursuits, it's because he was apparently not licensed to practice them on the public, and in 1981 he was fined 200,000 yen for not having said license and distributing unregulated drugs. That would be equivalent to about $7,000 today, if my math is right. It didn't stop him from working, however, and as he studied more religions and spirituality, his views on the world and spiritual concept began to solidify which eventually led to Omu Shinsen no Kai. It's been said that Matsumoto had a classic magnetic personality and charisma, something you hear often when cults and their leaders are discussed. This helped Omu Shinsen no Kai grow from its humble beginnings to become a 3,000-member strong organization. Matsumoto began touring and lecturing at universities, and at one point was apparently able to photobomb the Dalai Lama, using the photo to claim legitimacy and promote himself as a spiritual leader on par with the Tibetan guru. It worked, and the organization grew, as did Matsumoto's confidence and power. In 1986, he declared he had reached nirvana, 
the transcendent state without suffering, desire, or self. And in 1987, he renamed Aum Shinsen no Kai to Aum Shinrikyo, roughly translated as Universal Supreme Truth. He also changed his name to Shoko Asahara and purchased a large plot of land in Fujinomiya to build a compound in the shadow of Mount Fuji itself. The organization's goals of helping its members attain personal salvation began to morph into goals of helping the world rid itself of demonic energies. In 1989, it gained legal recognition as a religious corporation, and Asahara's popularity continued to grow. He recruited new members in a variety of ways. Television appearances, magazine articles, and lectures put Aum Shinrikyo in the spotlight to spread its teachings. Anime, manga, and several magazines preaching Aum's tenets were published by the organization. Salvation, healing, and positive life changes were promoted. The most beautiful of its members were sent around the countryside to recruit via sex and drugs. And eventually, violence and intimidation were employed to coerce people to join. While the burgeoning religious cult was taking pretty much anybody, there was a definite focus on the more wealthy members of society, as it needed money to fund its growth. Membership was not free, and after joining, members were expected to pay thousands for enlightenment courses with titles like Advanced Correspondence Course for Supernatural Powers. Those that chose to live at the Alm Compound were also expected to sign over their material possessions, including bank accounts and inheritances, to the religious corporation, and live in meager, packed, single-sex dormitories. Asahara also sold a variety of religious paraphernalia to Alm members at staggering costs. One could purchase a badge infused with Asahara's energy. A skullcap with electrodes and wires was sold so members could tap into his brainwaves. Expensive pints of Asahara's bathwater were offered, said to confer his wisdom when drunk. More expensive were vials of his blood, and even more expensive than that, vials of his DNA, which I don't think I need to tell you was his semen. Money was the voluntary part. Members had to go through initiation and indoctrination, including physical and mental endurance camps, being dosed with LSD, given shock therapy, and having to listen to things like this. This is Shoko Asahara. Do your training. Do good deeds. Do your meditation. The pain you are feeling is an illusion. This training will destroy the pain, it said. At this point, you may be wondering why anyone would subject themselves to this. It's a question we'll have time and time again, and there is no one answer. We'll discuss this more at the end of the show, but for Aum Shinrikyo, it was a combination of the recruiting methods mentioned earlier, vulnerable and marginalized people seeking acceptance and spiritual fulfillment, the appealing, seemingly progressive ideas of the organization, and young men and women being cut off from their parents and families. In fact, they were apparently told to shun their parents, who were said to be spouting sin and acting as demons. Parents were part of the present life. Aum Shinrikyo taught to only care about one's future. The doctrine it espoused is not easy to describe, as it was a blend of tantric Buddhism, yoga, Hinduism, doomsday Christianity, and even predictions of Nostradamus. It would eventually morph into mainly doomsday prophecy and how to achieve salvation for the end times, and taught to fear and distrust others such as Jews, the British royal family, America, other religions, Freemasons, and apparently, the Dutch. The cult kept growing, opening centers in several places across Japan. 
the Fujinomiya compound began to look less like a spiritual center and more like an army base, with around-the-clock armed guards and high fences topped with barbed wire. By 1989, if you joined them, there was no way to unjoin them. In fact, in February of that year, someone did try to escape the compound. A specially trained team of members hunted the ex-member down, brought him back, and brutally murdered him. If anyone hinted at withdrawing from the cult, a similar fate awaited them, apparently including microwaving the victims until they were brown sludge. Those on the outside began to see what was happening and started to be vocal about their distrust of Asahara's growing cult. In October of 1989, Tsutsumi Sakamoto, a lawyer who began working on a class action lawsuit against the cult, disappeared along with his wife and infant. It would be six years before their fate was uncovered. The cult had brutally murdered them and buried them in separate places in the countryside, smashing their teeth to help dissuade any future investigations. It was the first of several assassinations the cult made or attempted against those that publicly opposed them. By the early 1990s, Aum Shinrikyo had over 10,000 members in Japan alone and attracted thousands more around the world, most notably in Russia. Asahara published a few books, including the 1992 work Declaring Myself the Christ, in which he literally declared himself Christ and was the leader of the coming age and claimed the ability to levitate and read minds. By then, Asahara's new religious organization had amassed a wealth of almost $1 billion. Their ties to Russia led to the purchase of Kalashnikov rifles and even an old Soviet Mi-17 military helicopter. The rifles were purchased not only to arm the cult, but to help them manufacture similar weaponry. An ironworks factory was purchased not far from the Fujinomiya compound to produce these guns. The purchase of anti-aircraft missiles, tanks, and even nuclear weapons was in the works, and the cult began to infiltrate the Tokyo government. Members of the police force, officials, and other political circles were secretly infiltrated. Some cult members publicly ran for office. After failing to win several elections, Asahara decided to exert power another way. Since he claimed to be the Christ and prophet of the end times, he needed to make sure the end times happened. So he built a chemical and germ warfare factory. He had experimented with a botulism attack in 1990, when members drove through Tokyo's government district while spraying a colorless mist of the toxin. With enough of it in one's body, the results are horribly lethal. Fortunately, the anaerobic nature of the pathogen meant that as soon as it hit the air, it was neutralized. Asahara tried it again in 1993, spraying toxins near the crown prince's wedding as he hoped to wipe out the royal family at the time. That, too, failed. Plan C was to purchase a building in downtown Tokyo and set up a bio lab to manufacture anthrax. They hooked up an industrial fan and generators on the roof, and for four days, they pumped anthrax spores out into the heart of Tokyo. While small plants and animals didn't fare well in the area, the worst it got for humans was an odd and foul smell. In their efforts at mass murder and kick-starting the apocalypse, anthrax had failed, botulism had failed, and apparently a plan to bring Ebola over from Africa had fizzled out. But Asahara remained determined to root out evil in the world and establish himself as King of Japan, and eventually, the planet. The cult's compound in the town of Kamikuishiki turned its efforts to manufacturing the deadly nerve agent Sarin. It takes roughly six milligrams of sarin absorbed by the skin to kill a person. Asahara wanted 70 tons. To perfect the delivery of the substance, the cult purchased a remote sheep farm in Western Australia and practiced their methods, killing 29 sheep 
in the process. It's thought they also searched for uranium deposits in the area. In the spring of 1994, cult members drove a truck equipped with a sarin dispersal system near the leaders of a rival religious group. The attack was thwarted when the truck caught fire, however. After regrouping, that summer a refrigerated truck was driven to Matsumoto in Nagano, where a court was holding proceedings thought to have had negative outcomes for a land dispute the cult was involved in. The truck parked near the apartment block where the three judges were staying and began pumping a cloud of the gas out. This time, it worked. The breeze carried the gas throughout the town. Flu-like symptoms were reported from the lucky victims. Those in more contact with the deadly cloud suffered severe coughing, dizziness, blindness, and even spasms which caused severe bruising. It would ultimately claim the lives of eight people while injuring over 500, with many suffering permanent damage to organs. The cult was suspected, but the attack was pinned on a local chemist. He ended up being cleared after a few months, so suspicions once again fell on Om Shinrikyo. By March of 1995, the cult had assassinated at least two more people, one via VX gas, which was another nerve agent, and police were gearing up to raid the Fujinomiya compound. It's thought that the police were compromised, however, and Asahara was tipped off to the impending raid. In an effort to strike first, disrupt the law enforcement and the Tokyo government, and swoop in with a coup in the aftermath, Asahara launched his plan for Armageddon. March 20th, 1995 started out like a normal Monday. Commuters packed the Tokyo subway on their way to work, paying no attention to any of the five men carrying umbrellas and packages wrapped in newspaper. Why would they? The men were dressed in suits like thousands of other commuters, and absolutely nothing was suspicious about them. They all boarded different trains, mostly the busiest trains at that time of day, found a seat near a door, set their packages at their feet, and rode to previously determined stations. Then, as the doors opened, they calmly took their umbrellas, gently pierced the packages, and strolled off the trains and into cars that were waiting for them. On the five trains, the packages began to get wet, as the newspapers had concealed plastic bags of liquid sarin, which soaked into the papers and began to evaporate into the crowded subway trains. This plan, unfortunately, did not fail. As the toxin leaked out and evaporated into the train cars, people began to notice a foul smell and puddles by the packages. Saren is supposed to be odorless, but this batch wasn't due to impurities. Some people began to throw up, some began losing vision, some couldn't breathe, or worse. Panic began to spread among the commuters, and trains were shut down while authorities tried to figure out what was happening. Although one train went to the end of its line and back a full hour and 40 minutes later, because only one of its packets had been punctured. The subway resembled a battlefield. Hospitals would go on to see at least 5,510 patients suffering from various degrees of exposure. Some people didn't even know they had been exposed until they saw later news broadcasts about it. Twelve people lost their lives due to the attack, with one more person dying in 2009, having been in the hospital for 14 years. Many lost their vision and had permanent damage. The cult's compounds were raided shortly after that, and police found the terrifying stockpile of weapons and chemical manufacturing. Drug labs for LSD and meth, gold, millions of US dollars, barrels of deadly chemicals and prison cells with prisoners still in them were found. But it took two months to find Shoko Asahara, who was hiding deep in his headquarters inside a wall. 
the fallout was chaotic. Many additional assassination attempts were carried out, both for and against the cult. A bomb was mailed to Tokyo's governor. Another chemical attack was stopped before it began, and more. Members scattered, but many were found and arrested. Once the fallout began, it became clear what had happened to the anti-cult lawyer and his family, the attempted chemical attacks, and who had carried out the subway terrorism. By the next year, Aum Shinrikyo was no longer recognized as a religious legal entity. Possibly 350 cult members were being tried for crimes ranging from extortion to murder. Shoko Asahara was facing 27 counts of murder and numerous other offenses. He was found guilty on 13 charges, and in February of 2004, he was sentenced to death along with 13 other members of the cult. He and six other cult members were hanged on July 6, 2018. The other six members were hanged 20 days later. Om Shinrikyo splintered in the aftermath of the raids, regrouping under the name Aleph and renouncing the cult's previous doctrines. Aleph itself broke into another group, Ikari Nawa, and both have followers to this day, many of which are located in Russia and Eastern Europe. Authorities claim to keep a close eye on them, but there may be many Om Shinrikyo sympathizers still out there, as evidenced by a January 1st, 2019 attack in Tokyo when a man drove a car into a crowd of pedestrians, injuring eight people and claiming it was in retaliation for the executions. Though he may be gone now, the philosophy of Asahara's Om Shinrikyo still lingers. The second cult we'll be discussing is that of Ontario, Canada. This, too, deals with a man who fancied himself a prophet of Armageddon, another messiah to never be questioned, who ruled others with a gruesomely iron fist. His name was Rockterio, and his group of followers came to be known as the Anthill Kids. one believes that doomsday is imminent, and they themselves are the prophet tasked with saving others before it happens, is something you see over and over when studying cults. And it's exactly what Terrio believed when he was arrested not once, but two times in the late 80s and early 90s. Unfortunately, many people believed him, and paid for their belief horrifically. Terrio was born in 1947 to a French-Canadian family living in Saguenay Valley, Quebec. Most sources say he was a very bright child, but dropped out of school around about the seventh grade. He then focused on studying the Bible's Old Testament. His family were staunch Catholics. In fact, his parents were members of the Pilgrims of St. Michael, a.k.a. the White Berets, 
an organization promoting Catholic teachings, especially in economics, known for wearing white berets, and he apparently faced ridicule from his peers for this. In 1967, he married a local girl named Francine Grenier, and they had two sons together. Theriot developed rather severe stomach ulcers at the time and needed surgery for them. The pain never truly left him, and he began drinking heavily then. He picked up woodworking and also began having affairs, but his debauchery and lack of income finally caught up to him. His wife left him, and he lost his house. Soon after, he left the Catholic Church to become a Seventh-day Adventist. This Christian denomination believes Jesus' return is imminent and espouses a strict fundamentalist view of the Bible, including young earth creationism, Saturday being the Sabbath, opposition to gay marriage, vegetarianism, and more. I won't go through it all. As we've heard, Terio had remarkable charisma began preaching about the coming end times and how people could be saved and live happily together until then. By 1977, he had convinced a handful of people to follow his preachings and set up a healthy living clinic and commune in St. Marie, Quebec. Not only was what he preached compelling, those that knew him or knew of him said he was hilarious, charming, positive, and always able to make others laugh. The people who took to him were largely troubled folks, school dropouts, directionless, young, and looking for something that was missing in their lives. His commune would allow him and his followers to live in peace and love, free from sinful influence, and to pursue homeopathic medicine and live with complete freedom. One caveat, they couldn't have any contact with their families, as it didn't square up with their version of freedom. People quit their jobs and cut ties with their families and moved into the commune to live with Rock and prepare for the coming end of days. Around this time, he married one of the women he had an affair with. He had claimed God spoke directly to him and warned that the world would come to an end in February of 1979. He became known as Moses to his followers, and times were good at the commune. Though he strictly forbade it to his followers, his drinking habit would often lead to erratic behavior, which he managed to explain away convincingly enough. But the end times were coming, and he promised to keep his small flock safe. In 1978, he had the commune pull up stakes and move to a remote mountainside on the Gaspé Peninsula in eastern Quebec. His name for it was Eternal Mountain and he directed his followers to construct a tent town and communal log cabin there, apparently relaxing while they worked away. His drinking increased, as did the rules for the commune. Food was restricted to rations. Sex was forbidden unless he gave permission. Even speaking to each other was forbidden without Terio present. He chose favorites among his followers, and pitted them against each other for his attention and affection. Yet all the while, they did his bidding and waited for this supposed Moses to guide them through the end of the world. This may come as a shock to you, but the world did not end in February of 1979. When his followers questioned him about it, he responded by explaining how God's passage of time and humans' perception of it are two different things, and the February date was a slight error, even though it was God who gave him that time frame. He decided he needed to double down to keep the commune together and to grow its numbers. He instituted a uniform of sorts, identical tunics that everyone had to wear. He made all nine women living there his wives and proceeded to impregnate them. And his rules became stricter as his drinking increased. He was paranoid and spied on his followers. If anyone was caught breaking his rules, he would tell them that God told him about their transgressions. If anyone wanted to leave the commune for good, he would fly into a rage and beat them with a belt and eventually a hammer. 
After urging from the parents of some members, Terrio supposedly was taken into police custody and sent to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. Not only was he cleared of any mental deficiency, the hospital apparently praised his character, and he was given a one-year suspended sentence by a judge for obstruction of justice for not allowing police to come into his commune. Over the years, Terrio fathered at least 20 children with his wives. The commune had grown to more than a few dozen members, and in November of 1980, they welcomed a new member in, Guy Veer. He'd been treated for depression and thought the commune sounded like a good change for himself. He was considered mentally unstable and given a shed to live in and tasked with some chores, and also made babysitter for the children who weren't sired by Terrio. In March of 1981, the story goes that the man was watching some of the younger children. A two-year-old wouldn't stop crying, so the man beat it into a coma. When Terrio found out, according to the official account, the child's penis was swollen and Terrio decided to circumcise the child. He had no medical training whatsoever, but thought he was almost godlike in his own powers, which included surgery. The child was crudely circumcised, but died because Terrio had poured alcohol down its throat for anesthetic. He then ordered the body to be burned. Six months later, Terrio, in a drunken haze, decided Veer should stand trial for killing the boy. The commune found him not guilty by insanity, but Terrio wasn't satisfied and moved that they castrate the man. Most voted the way he wanted. Terrio then convinced the man that not only was it in his best interest, but to sign a letter saying he approved it. And Veer did. A crude castration was performed. A couple months later, Veer escaped and alerted the police who raided the commune. After questioning, it was determined Veer had killed the boy, had authorized the castration, and the others were charged with criminal negligence and obstruction of justice. Some served time in prison, including Terrio, who got two years less a day. The commune was burned by the police and bulldozed. A few members left for good, but a few stayed loyal to Terrio, receiving calls from him while in jail, where he promised a totally different and peaceful life when he returned. After his release in 1984, he found those who still had loyalty to him and took them back to the deep woods, this time a place near Burnt River in central Ontario. For a while, times were very tough and meager. They built a new cabin and several other buildings, they being two male members and nine of his wives, four of whom were pregnant. He watched as they worked together like little ants. He began referring to them as the anthill kids, and they slaved away, growing and selling fruit and baked goods along the road and preparing for harsh winters. And once they had stabilized again, he returned to drinking heavily, and his abusive, controlling behavior reached new heights in what had become a full-blown cult. He developed a hierarchy for them based on who he liked best. To punish transgressions, cleanse sins, or sometimes to just pass the time, he would torture them. It's been said he would strip members nude and whip them, suspend people from the ceiling, punish them by plucking individual body hairs, urinate on them, and even make them smear themselves with feces. To test loyalty, he made members take wire cutters and cut toes off of other members. He would then beat them with a hammer and mutilate them in different ways. That's what happened to the adults, but his children were not immune to his wrath either. Kids that misbehaved were held over fires, nailed to trees so other kids could throw rocks at them, and sexually molested. Badly. While it was incredibly difficult for their mothers to watch, no one questioned their Moses or his methods. So great was his control and their fear of him. 
It did, however, lead to fear of what he could do. And from this fear, one of his wives left her newborn outside in a blizzard because it was safer than having it around Terrio at the time. It died of exposure. The only adult woman who he hadn't wanted for a wife, a Maurice Grenier, was finally granted permission to leave with two of her three surviving children. The third, an adolescent, had to stay behind to be a future wife of Terrio's. Maurice managed to lift the spell that Terrio had seemingly placed on her and pursued legal action to get her remaining child back. After a joke of an investigation, which claimed Terrio was a fine father and sexual pioneer, the court finally ruled that the rest of the children be made wards of the government. Apparently, the investigators showed clear cultural bias toward the French-speaking cult, while the English-speaking court saw him for the pedophile he was. But there wasn't enough evidence to pursue charges against him. He continued to torture his followers, including more genital mutilations, burning them with an acetylene torch, attacking them with weapons, and pulling teeth and nails for no reason. If authority was questioned, he directed members to break their own legs with sledgehammers. Some had to sit on lit stoves, while others would be shot in their shoulders. Some infractions carried the punishment of having to eat dead mice and feces, and more and more. One of the followers, Gabrielle Lavallee, developed a prolapsed uterus. Terrio tried just shoving it back. Gabrielle escaped to a women's shelter, but was too scared and returned, prompting Terrio to try and yank the prolapsed uterus out. It didn't work. A year later, she would visit a doctor while he was away. In the fall of 1988, another follower, Solange Ballard, fell ill. Terrio decided she needed surgery, and once after drinking excessively, he told her it was time. He had her strip and lie down on the table in their bakery. He started with an enema of water, olive oil, and molasses. He poked and punched her stomach, then put a tube down her throat telling other members present to blow and suck on it. He then took a knife and cut her stomach open. He pulled out a four-inch length of tissue, ripped it off with his hands, and said, There, you're going to be all right. Someone else sewed up the wound, and she got up. He made a hot bath for her filled with cherries, which did not feel good to her. He then made a cold bath and washed her in it. She then went to bed, spat up some blood, and died. Terrio tried to commit suicide a number of times after that, but was unsuccessful. He then became convinced he was pregnant with Solange, and that she would be reborn through his semen. After weeks in the ground, he had her body exhumed and poured vinegar on her organs, and then reburied her. A few days later, he had her exhumed again and had a hole drilled into her skull. He then masturbated into the hole, thinking she would be brought back to life that way. It didn't work. She was then cremated. In July of 1989, he was once again on an alcohol bender. He grabbed Gabrielle and had her sit at the kitchen table. He asked her to place her hand on the table, and when she complied, he stabbed it with a hunting knife and left to drink more. It was apparently 45 minutes before he came back to see how bad her arm looked as she sat there, terrified. He then whittled her arm above the elbow to the bone and took a meat cleaver and amputated the whole arm. She would incur numerous other mutilations after that, and after two attempts to flee and deciding to return, she escaped for good the third time. She managed to tell the police everything, and Terrio was finally found, arrested, 
been convicted of charges relating to the amputation and second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1993. He went on to father a few more children with conjugal visits from followers while behind bars. But in 2011, he was found dead near his prison cell, stabbed in the neck with a shiv by his cellmate. One source says the cellmate walked to the guards, tossed the shiv down, and said, that piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. Another source says he said, the guy in the cell might need some assistance. Either way, it was the end of Rock Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids. Gabrielle Lavallee went on to write a memoir and have a speaking tour to schools and women's groups. She speaks about the dangers of cults, happiness, strength, and willpower. The last cult we'll be learning about stretches the term cult, though it's been referred to as such ad nauseum. It's certainly twisted in many aspects and lives in a gray area in others. But one thing's for sure, the tragedy of the story is undeniable, and only recently have survivors recovered enough to begin speaking about the Marcus Wesson family. This tale abounds with conflicting accounts and exaggerated info. It involves abuse, control, incest, vampires, Jesus, and murder, all to some degree or another, depending on who tells the story. Marcus Wesson was the eldest of four children, born in Kansas in 1946. The family relocated to San Bernardino, California in the early 60s. According to an article in the Fresno Bee, those that knew him and his family said he was a quiet, kind, and intelligent boy who dressed up nicely for school and had a model train collection. He was never a bully or anything but friendly. Wesson's later testimony apparently painted his childhood as less than ideal, with an abusive, alcoholic father who couldn't hold jobs and once ran off with another man for a number of years, and a militant Seventh-day Adventist mother, who may have also been abusive, depending on the source. Marcus didn't graduate high school, supposedly dropping out his junior year, though another source said he didn't have enough credits completed to receive a diploma, and at 17 he joined the army. He served for two years as an ambulance driver stationed in Europe, returning to the States in 1968 as an inactive reserve. He got a job in a bank in San Jose, but didn't care for the materialism of it all, and quit. It was around then that he met Rosemary Solorio, a woman in her 30s whose marriage was on the rocks due to an allegedly abusive husband. She and Wesson hit it off, as he was kind and charming and was happy to spend some time with her children. When she separated from her husband, Wesson moved in with her, and soon after the two had a son together. But Wesson had his eye on Rosemary's daughter, Elizabeth. He eventually married her. She was 15 at the time, and he was 27. 
They had a son four months later. Wesson, who had no job, basically began a nomadic lifestyle with his family. He lived on welfare, foraged for food and garbage, lived in a tent, on a boat, or outside, and moved all around the middle part of California. He and Elizabeth had five children by 1981, when he somehow got a $60,000 loan and built a 1,700-square-foot home in Santa Cruz County. At some point, he was able to acquire a small boat, a van, and a school bus, which he converted into living quarters and such. The family spent quite a bit of time at the Santa Cruz Harbor, where he rented a spot for his boat. An acquaintance he met at the harbor later said Wesson had told him how he'd been a corporate bank executive, but had quit to raise his family with homeschooling and Christian teachings. Wesson remained active with the Seventh-day Adventist Church and raised his family with those teachings as well. Elizabeth's sister sent the Wessons her seven children to live with them in 1986, allegedly because they had been molested in their own home, which made for a pretty large Wesson household. In 1987, Wesson bought a 26-foot sloop for $14,000, paid in money orders and traveler's checks. When asked about it by his welfare caseworker, he explained that he needed a boat that was considered a liveaboard vessel so he could keep using the harbor's bathrooms and showers. But the harbor eventually passed their own rules about limits to boat occupancy, and Wesson had to leave. He was charged with perjury and welfare fraud in 1989, mostly because he tried to skirt the system with the boat situation. He was fined and sentenced to 180 days in jail. By then, he and Elizabeth had had 11 children, though one died as an infant of spinal meningitis. After he served time, he and the family moved into a small office space turned home in Fresno. It's there that this story takes a seemingly odd turn, but according to some sources, the lead-up to what would happen had already manifested in Wesson's behavior. Most accounts, though some of his family denies it, and double though it's hard for victims to talk about what they went through, say that Wesson was violently strict with his rules in the household. If he perceived someone had acted out, he beat them, women and children, using cords, bats, fists, even choking. One account said he even stabbed one of his nieces in the chest for trying to leave once. Another time, one son of his had stolen a spoonful of peanut butter and was subjected to spankings three times daily for a month. After his incarceration, it seemed to get worse. He was a harsh authoritarian and supposedly preached to them three times a day though it was not normal Christian teaching. Wesson had apparently written his own version of the Bible, in which he was God and Jesus was a vampire. The manuscript was called In the Night of the Light for the Dark, and its tenets were that Jesus shed his blood for people, and people need his blood to be saved. Therefore, vampires. Wesson gave everyone in his family vampire names, his own being Jiva Marxaspire, a blend of Jesus, Vampire, and Marcus. He sent the manuscript to a publisher, who rejected it because it made no sense. One odd facet to the story that's often connected to this already odd facet is the number of old coffins that were found in the house. The vampire coffin connection is pretty obvious, but Wesson had always claimed they were to build furniture with, and in one anecdote he had once asked a local funeral home if they were interested in purchasing them from him. But it was generally assumed the family had used them as beds. Another part of Wesson's ministry, which incorporated many different theologies, as we've heard before, was preparation for the end of the world, which he believed would come in the year 2000. 
This included preparing bug-out bags, readying survival mills, and getting his children in a certain mindset that would eventually culminate in tragedy, warning them about the men with badges that would one day come to their door and what they had to be ready to do when that happened. But perhaps the worst thing to befall the household was Wesson's use of the Bible to justify sexual molestation of and incest with his daughters, which he called loving. He had two children with his oldest daughter and one with his second oldest, and was planning on more when the others were old enough. Two of his nieces, both of which had bore him children, finally worked up the courage to leave the Wesson household for good, though Marcus Wesson had only allowed it on the contingent that they leave their children there for him to raise. They reluctantly agreed. But after a while away from the household, the women, Sofina Solorio and Ruby Sanchez, decided what was happening was wrong and they wanted their children to be with them. On March 12, 2004, the women went back to the Wesson home to demand their children be returned to them. Marcus Wesson refused, prompting the women to leave and return with the police. Though they knew the police would cause tension with Wesson, they had no other choice. The police, thinking it was a routine domestic disturbance call, went to the door and spoke to Wesson, who was eerily calm and friendly. He asked them permission to go inside and say goodbye to his children before he let them go. The police had no reason to think anything was amiss, even though the nieces were apparently beginning to get hysterical, shouting that he would hurt the kids, and at one point one of his sons supposedly said he had a gun in the house. In some accounts, an hour and a half passed, with Wesson inside and police unable to do anything without a warrant. It was then that Marcus Wesson calmly opened the door and re-emerged, his shirt covered in blood. Police arrested him and ran inside the house. In a back room, they found the bodies of nine kids in a pile, aged 1 to 25. Each had been shot through the right eye. Witnesses that day say they heard gunshots. Police claim not to have heard any. It was believed that the children had died in a murder-suicide pact, part of their preparation for the end times. Some of the police present at the time had to take administrative leave and get counseling for what they found. Though the defense argued that his eldest daughter had pulled the trigger, it was reported by the Associated Press that Marcus Wesson had fired the shots that killed his children, and at the very least was responsible for convincing them to have a suicide pact. He was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder and found guilty of 14 counts of forcible sexual assault and molestation in 2005. He was sentenced to death and remains on death row in San Quentin Prison, though a moratorium has recently been put on the death penalty. He is ineligible for parole. After his arrest and into his trial, his surviving family remained loyal. They even spoke about what great lives they had growing up, how they would fish, sail, skateboard together, how he taught them woodworking, how they put on plays and ugly fashion contests in the living room, how they celebrated Christmas and how much Wesson cared for them. They remembered the good times. Those on the outside who knew Wesson couldn't believe the situation. He never gave any impression of the horrors that eventually came out. With time, his surviving family has come to accept the bad times they had along with the good. And watching interviews with them, it's clear how hard it still is for them to understand the situation and know that he did bad things, though they looked up to him and loved him for their entire lives. And with incredible strength and character, they have forged ahead to make lives for themselves and try to move on from their time with Marcus Wesson in the Wesson family household. 
I think you've probably already picked up some patterns in these three stories, though I, I don't think any of us can truly answer the question, why? Why let this happen? Why put up with the abuse? Why believe what seemed like delusional ideas? The truth is, there are too many answers, and we have the luxury of looking at it all in hindsight. Each one of these cults has a different answer for why. In Om Shinrikyo, people were coerced with promises and elitism. The young and the marginalized saw hope and acceptance, and strict rules changed perceptions of how reality was supposed to be. The anthill kids were promised freedom and acceptance, followed a shepherd who would guide them through the end of the world, and eventually followed stricter and stricter rules, which culminated in such great fear they were too paralyzed to do anything else. The Wessons were raised with little outside contact, being taught that Marcus's ways were normal and abided by strict rules, bearing consequences and accepting what they were taught. And yet there's more to each of these examples. It's all so gray for those involved. It seems so black and white to us on the outside. These men were bad. Their actions were inexcusable. End of story. But it was all such slow burns. Rockterio didn't carve up arms and rip intestines out on day one. Shoko Asahara didn't say, come do yoga with me and get a free bag of sarin to kill your enemies. Marcus Wesson didn't meet Elizabeth Solorio and start beating her. It was a gradual process that in most instances started with love and admiration, which leads to excuses, and the line of acceptance gets pushed back little by little. Brainwashing is always thrown around with things like this. Yes, in a broad sense, that's what's going on, but it's a subtle and sensical brainwashing to where you don't even realize it's happening. It's not like you see in movies, someone sitting in a chair in front of a wall of atrocities playing on numerous televisions, their eyes held open by some sinister machine of torture. It starts with a need, with someone who can feel that need, or the promise of fulfillment of feeling special, having purpose, having community. And gradually, that need is replaced by fear. Fear of having that specialness and that purpose taken away. Fear of acting against that purpose and the consequences it might carry. Fear of being wrong about it all. It's codependency on steroids. And it's incredibly difficult to explain and comprehend. These cults we discussed share many things in common. A charismatic leader, promises for a different life, authoritarianism and out-of-control narcissism, abuse, social isolation, a twisting of religious ideas into a strict, personalized dogma, doomsday prophecy, sexual control, among others. It's all intertwined and hard to spot early on. And I don't think any of these groups considered themselves cults, at least not the pejorative use of the term. They were communities that by and large sought happiness, spiritualism, and safety, and couldn't see the rottenness at the core. The terror of ghost stories, cryptid encounters, alien reports all pale in comparison to the capabilities of the human race. Maybe we seek out those eerie and frightening tales to distract us from the reality of what could be happening next door. That's Creepy Cults in a sinister, gruesome, tragic nutshell. Hey, no puns. <laughs> Pretty obvious.
I think instead we should all take a shower, pour a glass of bourbon, maybe rewatch Firefly or something. <laughs> this is, uh, it's much different than uh, normal fare on the show, but we've never been shy about trying new things on here. It's been a much requested topic in the past. I don't think I'll be doing many of these. It's pretty heavy stuff, but it certainly fits the bill for frightening, I think. I included many details to show the scope of this topic and the people involved. Believe it or not, I left some stuff out. If this is not your cup of tea, thanks for listening. Thanks for giving it a try. And I've got much lighter stuff coming up, including folklore that should be a blast. I teased an announcement at the beginning. Derek Hayes, over at Monsters Among Us, is teaming up with me to film a documentary. Our goal is to make a feature-length film about the high strangeness going on in a part of the world that doesn't get covered much. Anza Borrego State Park in California. It's a paranormal hotspot with UFO sightings, cryptid reports, and ghost stories of the Wild West variety. We're going to be launching a Kickstarter to fund the project, and that'll probably go live, uh, I would say, at the end of the month. So, you know, just keep your eyes peeled and just start getting all kinds of excited. I'll tell you more as we get things more put together. But in the meantime, if any of you guys have any stories from that area, anything near San Diego, Joshua Tree, Anza Borrego, the Salton Sea, etc., please shoot me an email or message me and tell me your story. We're gathering research and just practically ravenous for encounters. It's a cool area with cool stories. I think it's going to be a great film. So get excited. (laughs) If you haven't yet, please go to blurryphotos.org. Click the banner to vote for me for best podcast in Chicago. Like I said, I've got pretty stiff competition this year with Hysteria 51 on there. So all the votes you can cast would be immensely helpful. No registration or anything needed. And No need to vote for anything else on there. It's under the City Life section, which is page four if you're on mobile. Make sure to hit save at the bottom when you're done. Thank you to Sean and Jeff for donations lately. I greatly appreciate it. And thank you to Andreas for buying me coffees at ko-fi.com slash blurry photos. Every cup helps. Thank you, guys. Make sure to like the Facebook page, follow blurry underscore photos on Twitter, blurry photos podcast on Instagram. And get extra episodes when you sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash blurry photos. Stay tuned for a couple more episodes this photober. And, hey, thank you very much for listening. For this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been the charismatic, but not that charismatic speaker, David Flora. Till next time. (laughs) 